Good morning. My name is Bethany Ainey. I will be reading today's scripture, scripture passage. You can find it on page 847 in your pew Bible or follow along on the screens. John 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for me. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Before the service started, I won't say who, there were a few people teasing me about what a pastor does all weekend, uh, all week, excuse me, not <laughs> besides preparing the sermon, which is a fairly normal joke that gets said a lot to me. But one of the things, I won't tell you all the things I do. One of the things I did, I saw a friend named Andrew. Andrew's a pastor in Spring Grove, and um, not far, about an hour from here. He's also preaching through the Gospel of John. And I shared with Andrew my line from last week's sermon that what we're doing now in the Gospel of John is like episodes from the television show 24, where every passage we go through is like an hour of Jesus's life on this fateful night. night. Andrew looks at me and says, that's brilliant. And I said, well... And I added, yeah, 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 but it doesn't have all the torture and the violence and stuff. And he looks at me and he's like, well, (gasps) Um, indeed, as Thursday night for Jesus and these disciples rolls into the early hours of Friday morning, the day of the cross that we call Good Friday, things get harder for everyone especially Jesus, and it's all very troubling. This is why Jesus gives these promises to these disciples, and I believe us disciples as well. So as we study them together, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we sang about arising and going to Jesus. We will arise and go to Jesus. which probably means several things, but at least it means believing 
who you are and what you've done and coming to know that in a deeper way. And so, Lord, would you answer all those prayer requests and more as we study this passage, as we, with our hearts, try to arise to go to you, would you come to us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. When you're driving along and a bug splats on your windshield, that's really not that big of a deal. You can still see just fine through your windshield. Now, there's not a lot of bugs right now. Maybe, maybe snow would be a better metaphor. Like when it's snowing just a tiny bit, you throw on the wipers, you put on the defrost, everything's fine, you can see. Now, this would never happen, but imagine with me, you're at a stoplight and someone takes their five-gallon bucket of Sherwin-Williams and throws it on your windshield. Like, that's not going to happen, but if it happened... At the stoplight, you would want to speed away probably as quickly as you can. Like, why are people throwing paint on my windshield? That would be strange. But if it happened and you're speeding away, you would have two problems. The first would be um, that it would be very difficult to see. And the second problem would be that everything you did see would be colored by that. Right? That would be the two problems. And what I want to say is that pain and suffering and trials can be all-consuming like that. As trouble increases, we can think of little else but our troubles. And what we do think about is colored by those challenges. I'll say it again. When our troubles increase, um, we can think of little else but those troubles. And everything we do think about is colored by those troubles. And that's a real challenge. And I believe it's the very specific challenge that Jesus is addressing in this passage, which brings me to the first point of the sermon. We're going to be talking about the context of the trouble. So if you have a Bible, look with me at the opening line again. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus says, John 14, 1. We talked about this at the dinner table last night and it can be helpful for different ages to explain that when Jesus is speaking of trouble here, he's not saying the disciples are in trouble, but that they ought to not let their hearts be troubled, which is, means, means don't worry. Don't let yourself become worried and anxious and fearful. Now, these disciples, they were, like us, sinful men, sinful people. But that's not their main problem at this moment. Now, they could ignore Jesus' words here, you know, believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. They could ignore those and choose not to do those and not to receive his promises, and that would have an element of sin within it, I'm sure. But that's not what's going on here. It's not their sinfulness that's mostly in view. It's just that they're finite. It's that they're limited and they don't understand and that all the things that are happening to them are very troubling. Consider the context of what's been going on, where they find themselves. It's been a crazy week for them. Their leader over and over again in the temple grounds got into heated conversations with the religious religious leaders who are now vowing to kill their leader and their friend. That's troubling. They're staying in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has, the city itself has has 
swelled with people, perhaps 100,000 people, perhaps even more people have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the religious festival of Passover. And the Romans, they're, they're fine with that. Maybe it even produces commerce. I don't know, maybe they like it. But to some degree, it's, there's a, a, an electricness to it that they have to keep the peace under control, which is getting increasingly hard because of would-be messiahs running around and stirring up the crowd. And then this meal they're having together, this Passover meal, Jesus speaks of someone who would betray him. That's troubling. And then after the meal, Peter, one of the leaders among the disciples, is told he's going to betray Jesus, and that's very troubling. And then Jesus, on top of all that, he keeps circling back to almost in cryptic language of him going away and leaving. Where's he going to go? What's he going to do? All of this, again, is very troubling. In, In short, they haven't done anything necessarily wrong. It's like they're just at a stoplight and someone dumps <laughs> buckets of paint on their car and they can't see clearly. Now think of us for a moment. Are we sinful? Well, sure. But if we get cancer or some other disease, maybe an autoimmune disease, that would be very troubling. But we don't generally get these sorts of things for particular sins. Because we've done anything particular and wrong. If you've worked for a huge company and they're threatening layoffs, it, is it your, I mean, if you were the CEO, maybe you would have some sort of culpability in that. But otherwise, like, like you're not responsible for that situation and that it might be the worries you have this winter. At the dinner table, we were talking about stories where we feel troubled. And I actually mentioned I could use a few extra more stories for my sermon. And um, they had plenty of stories to share that I should tell you. Almost none of them had anything to do with this passage, so I'm going to save those for another day. They're good stories. Maybe they'll show up at some point. But we did mention a few. There was a time 13 years ago when the housing market um, crashed and our family moved. Um, Not to here, it was moving to somewhere else. We couldn't sell our house and nearly lost all of our savings, like very, very, very close to having no money left. And we did lose our house. It was a very troubling time. Um, Maybe some of you experienced similar things during that era. There was a time my wife had a miscarriage, something people don't talk about much, but happened. You're wondering, like, what happened? Why did this happen? What, what was going on? What did we do wrong? There was a time I started seminary. We didn't mention this one, but this is a time I think about when we were about to have our first child, and I'm thinking, like, I'm scared. Are we going to have money? Are we, like, what's work going to mean? Two jobs? Am I going to have enough time? You may not have gone to seminary, but you may have had those similar situations. I can tell you more current ones, but I don't want you to worry <laughs> for me. Um... And and the first point is just a long way to say that if you have a bug splat on your windshield, it's no big deal. A little snow, no big deal. But when you have a major life situation thrown into your lap, you'll hardly be able to see, and everything you do see will be colored by that trouble. This is where the disciples were at. Maybe not all of us, but maybe that's where a few of you are this morning. So into that context, what does Jesus have to say? Jesus gives three promises for troubled hearts. And so probably if you're looking at the Bible, I'm just going to take those three paragraphs and try and explain what those promises meant to them and what they mean to us. Very simple. The first promise 
that Jesus makes to troubled hearts is that Jesus is going to do everything necessary to bring us to himself. Let me read verses 1 to 7 again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may, also, may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way I, and, I, and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen me. I'm not sure how familiar all of you are with Christian music, especially that from other eras, but there was a song once, a few of you will know if I could quote it, about a big, big house. Do you know this song? <laughs> from the 90s, so it's 93 actually. Big, big house, lots and lots of rooms. I'll just, because you, you know you want me to if you've heard it. I will read the, 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 the chorus. It's a big, big house with lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football. There you go. Audio Adrenaline, uh, 1993. Now that song comes largely from this passage. This passage actually has nothing to do with football, unfortunately, right? But, but that was the song. It was this idea that God has a big house. It's full of food, full of joy. I think that's what that meant by saying where we can play football. But that song gets a few things right. There's lots of room. Lots of room in God's house. Anyone, this passage is saying, anyone who wants to come to God through Jesus can come. Anyone can experience Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. There's always more room. As long as you come, come through Christ. Believing who he said he is. And what he did, he, he lived, he died, he rose. And what he will do, believing that he'll, he's going to come again, he's going to rule and reign. To do that is to, to say there's, there's always room for more. As we look at these section of verses, I, what Jesus is promising to do, he, he's not just that we come to God through him. That's not only what he's saying. He's saying not only do we come through him, but we come to him. In this way, and in, especially in these verses, the promise of heaven is less about a place and more about the presence of a person. Look again with verse, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Back in chapter 11, the Jewish religious leaders, it they're worried that the Romans, because of all, that, all the controversy, all the things that are happening, they're worried that what they say is that Rome will come and take away their place and their nation. That's an exact quote from John eleven forty eight. It's a real fear, isn't it? It's not just their fear. We can feel like this too, not exactly in the same way, but in our own ways. You can feel threatened at work or at home. You can feel threatened for our country, what's happening in it and where it's going. You can have all these sorts of troubles. And what Jesus is saying to us 
flip the page there too soon. (laughs) What Jesus is saying to us is that there is a place that he is preparing that is secure. And all those fears we have that we're going to get excluded from some circle or we won't have access to something that we need access to, Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about that. When trouble comes and all of our vision feels colored by our pain, Jesus wants us to believe and know that there is something, a place that is secure. And he's going to do everything that would need to be done to get us there. The second promise he makes to troubled hearts is that he's not led us astray. I'll take a minute to explain this one because we could get lost in the wording that goes on here. I'm going to read it again in a moment. But, but what, what, what Jesus is going to be saying here in these verses is when he has shown us himself, when he has lived among these disciples for three years, he has given an accurate representation of what the Father is like. In his power, in his love, in his grace, in his holiness, he's shown us what the Father is like. Look at verses 8 through 11. Philip, another disciple, speaks up just as Thomas did a moment ago. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I Say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Now, again, these words, they, they, they can feel confusing to us. If you've ever seen the Russian nesting, nested doll, I think it's the phrase, like a doll within a doll, like you take the lid off and like there's another doll, oh, there's another doll, right? You keep going along here. You, you can read these words and it, it feels like, oh, Jesus is inside the Father. Like, then you're like, oh wait, no, the Father's inside Jesus. Like, what's, what is going on here? What, what, what are these words saying? I think it's helpful to just say that what, what Jesus is describing here is one aspect of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the specific aspect is that they work together. They work in unison. Another way to say it, Jesus hasn't led us astray. And in that way, these verses relate to one of the main controversies that circled around Jesus, among, especially as he conflicted there with the religious leaders. They would say that Jesus was pulling people away from God. You take the Sabbath, for example. The way that Jesus approached the Sabbath, which is to say disregarded the laws of the Sabbath, was evidence that Jesus was not leading people to God, but pulling them away. Now, he wasn't actually breaking these Sabbath laws, but, but their Sabbath laws that they built up and around um, the laws of God. So he was breaking their traditions and therefore bring, leading people away from God. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that as we read the Gospel of John, when we see Jesus heal the sick and preach truth and stand for justice, justice and show compassion and love sinners, we're seeing exactly what God is like. We don't have to guess what God is like. Perhaps you've heard people describe the Bible like this before. Maybe you've even 
felt this way yourself at times. Well, okay, in the Old Testament, God feels cruel and mean and all these wars and all these laws and all these things. And, and well, Jesus in the New Testament, he's, he's nice and he's not as cruel and he's loving. These verses actually promise something better. And that would have been helpful for these disciples in this particular moment. Again, suffering can cause you to question everything. If you lose your job in this massive layoff, and the layoff has nothing to do with your job, you're still going to feel like it had something to do with you. If you're about to retire and the economy takes a huge dip and you've been saving for 40 years, and now your retirement doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like, or when you can't seem to find a spouse, or you can't seem to find or change the spouse that you have, or they cause them to live differently, not change out spouses. I'm not saying that. <laughs> clarify there. I feel like I'm stumbling over my words, and I just I want to stumble over that part. Um, when you, have, you want to have children, but you can't seem to have children, or the children you have, you can't seem to help them live life in ways that are different. When you experience all these moments, what Jesus is saying to you, the love and compassion and power that Jesus has for the weak, wounded, and wayward is exactly what the Father has for you, too. The final promise for troubled hearts comes in verses 12 to 14. Let me read these in a moment. But Jesus is going away. And in this intervening time, they were going to experience, they experienced it in a short way and now in a long way, which we've all experienced as Jesus has yet to return, but will return. What he's promising here is that effective ministry will continue even in his absence and perhaps in many ways increase. Look at the words with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, to be honest, at the end of a sermon here, I don't want to spend the rest of our time just endlessly qualifying what he means and doesn't mean, lest we lose kind of an or blunt the promise he is making here. But we probably need to spend a few minutes talking about what he does and doesn't mean. This phrase about doing greater works and asking for what he says is anything, it seems, that we want to ask for. So a few comments. How come I can't turn water to wine? How come I can't walk on water? Why can't I go to the grocery store? Or why do I need or why do we need to go to the grocery store instead of just having one loaf of bread that lasts 5,000 days, right? Why, why can't we raise our friends from the dead? What, what, in what sense should we be doing greater works? In what sense should we not? Well, He's not promising those sorts of things. He's not promising that we will do greater miracles. I think, in this case at least, the wording is very important. What Jesus is promising is that the collective work of his followers, doing ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is something that's going to show up like that, that doing ministry in the power of God the Holy Spirit, it's going to show up over and over again in these chapters from 14, 15, 15, Sorry, 14, 15, 16, and 17. When we do that, we will in some ways do greater works. Now, in what ways? It's this. There's going to be more followers. 
Jesus had followers, that was for sure, but after he dies and goes to heaven, on the first day that the church is born in the book of Acts, the 120 followers go to 3,000 followers. One day, Jesus in his ministry never had a day like that. Now, he fed lots of people, but I don't know how many of them became believers, but it, we're told explicitly that 3,000 people became believers, and ever since that day, the good news story of Jesus reaches far-flung places like the United States of America and Harrisburg, and that's the good news he's talking about here. I think similar things can be said about this phrase, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son, verse 13 and 14. And we spent a ton of times kind of qualifying this, but, but do you think these troubled disciples were sitting around all worried that their leader's going away and then they're like, okay, now I can ask for a Ferrari. <laughs> like I think that, like he said, whatever we want, like I just ask for it and then we'll get it. Is that, like they probably didn't ask for a Ferrari, but they're probably equivalents in their day of something like that. Is that what they were asking for? I don't think so and you don't think so either. Someone's name meant their character and their values. To ask in Jesus' name meant to ask for things that were consistent with his character and with his values, who he was and who he had shown himself to be over these years. The disciples didn't want a Ferrari. They, they just wanted to follow Jesus well. They wanted to do their best. They, they, they wanted to believe that all this troubling time, Jesus going away, that the, the, this momentum, this, this gospel ministry, this healing the sick and preaching the good news that we read about from the book of Isaiah that was now happening there among them, they wanted to know that it wasn't going to shrivel up and die. Is it all going to fall apart? They wondered. In another place, the disciples say, Matthew Chapter 19, we've left everything to follow you. Was that in vain? Jesus is promising that these troubled disciples would continue to pray, continue to talk to Jesus, and even when he's gone, life and ministry, which felt hard, was going to continue. Think about this on this Sunday, maybe in particular. Scott prayed about sanctity of human life, and I, th I think of Morningstar Pregnancy, one of um, these pregnancy centers around the area, and, and even one of our members works there. And, and I can imagine how troubling it would be to work there in some ways. How you could just feel like the, the, the weight of life and death just hangs upon everything you do, the conversations you have, the counseling that's done, and you could think that how, how in the last 50 years we're missing 60 million children. You're just there, just trying to make a difference. And Scott, as he prayed earlier, for those in the foster care system, I think, and I'm looking out at some of you who have adopted, trying to be helpful and joyful in your own families and, 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 and address all of this. It, it could just feel so hard. And in these troubling times, times that like you did, problems you didn't cause, you're just there and you're trying to be helpful, it is good to know that there are prayers you can pray that God wants to answer. I mean, just, just we, we can say what it doesn't mean, but, but look what it does mean. If you look at the phrase, that the Father will be glorified. What does that mean? What does that imply? 
Surely it has something to say about the kinds of things we would pray for. But, but, but the point I want to make is that we, he wants us to pray. This image here of glory and prayer and answering and God working and Jesus working in the lives of his disciples is a way to say he wants this to be happening. This vision Jesus gives here is not of the disciples just settling for some lame existence and limping along. But he wants them to experience the creator of the universe in ways that they haven't experienced him yet. And I would suspect, to kind of paraphrase a a line from C.S. Lewis and bring it into a different context, I would suspect that our Lord finds our prayer requests not too large but too small. Likely our prayers, they're too narrow, they're too focused, and Jesus wants to do great things that his name would be glorified. I want to close with just a, a few sentences here. Just in summary, there are sermons where we need to be confronted with our sin. There are passages that that address it directly. And we'll preach plenty of those as we come to them. This is one, I believe, for those who are hurting. For those who are troubled. For those who are confused about who God is and what is he like. In other words, this is a passage where God wants to pour his grace into not just those who are fallen, but those who are finite. This passage reminds us that God's plan of redemption is bigger than us. That's really my main takeaway from the passage. Is that whatever you're going through, whatever is going on, as as these disciples were had their things going on, their sin and their fallenness, all of that was there among them. What Jesus here is promising is a plan that is bigger and better and wider and more sweeping, which is a way to say that when our present and our future vision of the world feels colored with trouble, God intends for these promises to clear away the paint so that you could see him clearly. Would you join me in prayer as we close, invite our musicians to lead us in one more song. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know that if we were to take the next hour and just sit with the people around us, there would be plenty of concerns. Maybe they're not in the foreground, but they're in the background. Prayers for loved ones, sickness or health challenges, prayers for salvation, prayers for people who far, feel far from the Lord. So Lord, we, we just lay all of that before you now, even if we do it briefly, asking you to see and to hear and to know and do more than we could ask or imagine. We pray this in Christ's name.